I'm excited to introduce our guest today. He's the VP of engineering over at Swan. He gives himself a lot of different names. I discovered him off of his episode of what Bitcoin did, the self-proclaimed libertarian, socialist, anarchist, Ben DeWall. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Ben, what did I miss in your title? What do you do? What do you consider yourself? Because, and we will dive into the What's the right word? It's Monday, so my brain's half a step too slow. But being a socialist, anarchist, libertarian is not anything anyone would ever think one person can be. So I would love to just dive into that in a moment with you. Sure thing. So to answer your question, what do I consider myself most? It's actually humanist. I'm interested in human well-being, and I think my ultimate goal is the flourishing of humankind. And that's also why I'm a Bitcoiner. As for my politics, which is the main topic here, yeah, the general term is libertarian socialist. That is actually a very broad term, though. Lots of people fall under that particular thing, you know, even though I know a few agorists who would disagree, agorism is generally considered a type of libertarian socialism. I would narrow it down a bit more for myself and say I'm a free market anarchist, which basically means I'm an anarchist who believes in free markets. That, however, free market anarchism does not mean the same thing as anarcho-capitalism. And that's where a lot of confusion comes in, quite simply around the definition of capitalism. So I am most definitely an anti-capitalist, but in order to understand what I mean when I say that, it kind of helps to understand what do I mean by capitalism. If you define capitalism purely as free markets, then obviously I'm not an anti-capitalist because you know, I already said I'm in favor of free markets. I think free markets are a good thing. But I also think it's wrong to define capitalism as purely a system which has free markets. Capitalism is a system where you can control things the more capital you have. So essentially, you have some kind of structures in place, especially things like governments, which are capable of saying, okay, we're going to define this virtual capital structure, such as a corporation, and then build build on top of that to allow that thing to act as if it's a person. So things like corporate personhood are a part of capitalism. These are the things which I'm against as an anti-capitalist. Essentially, that's what most classical anarchists are generally defining themselves as. So can you just quickly iterate, because you went through a couple different like decision trees and I'm actually taking notes as we go. So libertarian socialism is, is, and then is an offshoot free market socialism or is that all kind of the same thing? Free market anarchism. And I'd I'd call it a subtype. Okay. I'd I'd call it a, a subtype. So essentially libertarian socialism is just this very broad, it's slightly less broad than socialism. Because you can, if we start, let's start off the very top level. Socialism is a system whereby the means of production, distribution, and control, sorry, means of production, distribution, and exchange are controlled by the people as a whole rather than by a a single entity. That's pretty much the definition of socialism. Mm -hmm. From there, you can have either state socialism or libertarian socialism. State socialism is, for example, what the USSR tried to do. So where you have a single state who is responsible for managing all of those different uh, aspects of socialism, then libertarian socialism is the counter to that. That's where we say, okay, we like this idea of socialism. We like everything belonging to the people as a whole, but we don't like this idea of having a state controlling it because we believe that if you have a single state, it's going to uh, become corrupt. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you put everything in the control of a state, obviously they will abuse it. And we saw that in the USSR. We saw that in China. We see that in every state socialist environment. So libertarian socialism is basically the counter to that. Okay, got it. And then how does anarcho... You, you, you also mentioned, sorry. Wait, I uh, want to... we go, go into anarcho in a second? Because yeah, yeah, this, this literally was the exact thing that triggered... I was working out in the morning, listening to your interview, and when you gave that explanation of socialism, I literally was like, nope, all right, we're getting him on the show because I need to, we need to hash this out a little bit because I don't feel, personally, I don't feel like either of these definitions encapsulate what we see spoken about today. And you highlight that a little bit as well, that like at, somewhere along the way, we kind of lost that definition and it got, it got turned into something else. I'm curious what you attribute that shift in the definition of socialism to be and 
where or why this new definition is at fault with what you believe. I really wish I could just channel Noam Chomsky here because he described it incredibly well at one point, so I'll do my best. Basically, during the Cold War, the USSR said, hey, we are socialist. And the US said, hey, those guys are socialist. So you've immediately got this cropping up of the idea that whatever the USSR does is socialist and whatever the US does is capitalist to try and create this strong division because, well, that's kind of the point of the war. You know, the Cold War was creating this division between the two, trying to make, uh, you know, the godless commies on one side and the Christian um, capitalists on the other side. You know, that's kind of what this whole thing was happening. And what that meant was that the USSR could start doing some things which were decidedly not socialist, but everyone in both the USSR and the US would agree is socialist quite simply because of this ridiculous division that they had, you know, saying everything that happens there is socialist. So I'd say that's where some of it comes from. But then later, and especially probably in the last 20 years or so in the US, there's been a further trend towards the idea of socialism being essentially anything that the Democratic Party wants to do. Now, let me first preface this by saying I do not think the Democrats are socialist in the slightest. I think both the Democrats and the Republicans are authoritarian right-wing parties. They have different flavors of authoritarian right-wing behavior, but they're still both authoritarian. They're still both highly capitalist. It's just what kinds of companies they want to support and what kind of social policies they want to support tend to be different. You know, one tends to be more family-oriented, the other tends to be more, you know, handouts to the poor kind of thing rather than you know economic behaviors so yeah I, I think that's where a lot of the split come a lot of the confusion around the term comes from essentially people applying the label to something which it really isn't but then through the actions of those people those actions become associated with that label and i love how you just clump together the democrats and the republicans in America, because they are just cut from the same cloth, they may differ on a couple of different things. So where would you then say the US sits on this spectrum that you've described? Uh, the US is an incredibly diverse place with an incredible diversity of people. I think there are, pro there are people in the US in all corners. No, 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 no. I, I mean specifically like our current political system. Your, where, where your is- current political system, yeah. I, I'd call it highly capitalist. It's essentially, it, it's almost a form of devolved capitalism in a way where the government is taking a keen interest in individual companies and then cropping them up as much as possible and then giving them a lot of political power. And that's one of the things which is really, really noticeable in capitalism, as, as I would define it, is that companies are given political power. They're given the power to control the people. You can even, you know, if you look at you know, classic science fiction, you've got the, the concept of this dystopian future, cyberpunk kind of dystopian futures, where governments are basically meaningless, and you just have mega corporations controlling everything. That's essentially the end stage of the type of capitalism which America is currently in. I, I like that you've equated some of these corporations to be sort of for lack of a better word, like almost like a, a lapdog for the government or like a stooge of the government, rather than focusing on that aspect of it, I do want to unpack some of this, like the government putting money or the government propping up businesses or industries that in a truly free market system would have just, the market itself would have dictated that this business no longer needs to exist and a new business should in turn succeed or be propped up. Like, again, how or what are you seeing from a historical context that justifies some of these decisions, if if there's any justification at all? And I'm just going to blatantly and bluntly ask, like, how is that not socialistic in nature? So it's not socialistic in nature purely because, like I said before, the definition of socialism is control of or um, yeah, the means of production, distribution, and exchange are controlled by the people. The government giving handouts is not part of the definition of socialism. The government propping up companies most definitely is not, because in a purely, truly socialist society, companies as individual entities, as a separate entity to the people who are a part of that company, wouldn't really exist. They aren't, they're a legal fiction. Companies are something 
defined by the government. You know, you know, what is a company other than a piece of paper that the government has said this entity now exists? So you know, if you go to the proper end goal there, say, okay, if there is no government, then there cannot be companies because you cannot have you know, a company as a separate entity. Of course, there are still people getting together, working towards common goals. And you can use a term like company for that, but it has no extra legal status. It has no status as an entity that is separate to and something apart from the people that exist. So, you know, I don't think companies should be able to own anything, for example. People should own things and people can come together with the things that they own to do great things. But it shouldn't be this you know, legal fiction created by a government of companies to make that exist. There's a big can of worms that I know P is going to want to unlock, but I just, I want to, okay, let me ask this then. If my tax dollars cover, I'm just going to make up a company, let's say American Airlines, and let's say American Airlines in a period where the government has decided or the world has decided, hey, we can't really fly like right now, probably not in the best interest of people. So no flights. But this made up company, American Airlines, planned very, very poorly for a potential catastrophe like this. And in turn has now asked the government, hey, can you save us, made up company, American Airlines, and give us just some money to hold us over? Me as a citizen whose tax dollars went towards that, I have now, I feel like I have contributed to propping up this company while at the same time I reap no rewards. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with I, you. That's not a good thing. But, like, but, but the, in that scenario, how is that not to a degree the people themselves having some ownership, whether it's a positive ownership or a negative, in this instance, it's a negative ownership. We own the losses and we are sharing in that loss as the people. So that's where, like, I agree to some extent in your definition. What I'm trying to really figure out is how do we label these bailouts so that these bailouts never exist again? My fear candidly is, and I, I noticed this a little over the weekend with, with certain products and doing some research on potential guests, I feel like we're slowly starting to see new products in the Bitcoin space that are borrowing from this financial system that many of us in Bitcoin look at and say, like, we don't want this. This is this did not work and it won't work. And yet, for whatever reason, a lot of the products we're creating recreate that exact thing over again. So my fear is unfortunately, as I see that, inevitably when I'm actually old and have no hair on my head anymore. Like all of a sudden random companies will be getting bailed out even though we're on a global Bitcoin standard. And then people like you and I will be sitting there like, wait a minute, we did this once before and it didn't work, guys. Why are we doing this again? That That's my fear. So I, I can only agree with you completely and say, you know, this is going to be something which I know I'm going to lose Twitter followers for. That is called capitalism. That's the problem. That's the thing I'm against. A company being bailed out by the government is the government supporting those companies. It's the government legitimizing those companies as entities. Remember, that can't happen under what I'm talking about with libertarian socialism because the company doesn't exist as a legal entity. It's not a thing. You know, if the people get together and want to run this thing that they're calling American Airlines, great. But if they fail, then they fail. That's just the way it is. If they succeed, then they succeed. You know, maybe they'll get smaller, maybe they'll get bigger, who knows? But you know, that's you know, individuals doing things and not this idea of a company. So I, I also completely agree with what you're saying about this happening in the Bitcoin space. If we do not do something about capitalism, then we could have the same problem eventually. You, know, you could get bailouts happening um, in the Bitcoin space. I don't really foresee that myself. But, you know, I'm somewhat of an optimist. Um, but, yeah, you know, I'm not going to say it's not possible. It absolutely is possible. And, uh, yeah, it's something we need to be careful of. We need to avoid. I'm going to slowly start creeping into the anarchy side of this conversation now, P. So I, I know you're digesting. No, no, go for it. I'm, I'm just enjoying this and trying to track all the concepts in my head. I, I am not a particularly a political animal myself. And so I'm enjoying this and I'm trying to take notes. I may have more questions as we go on about like, wait, what does this thing mean? But I spent a lot of this weekend reading an, a book 
about the history of Iran and America's like political relationship. And it's fascinating. And I will tell you the straw that really broke the camel's back I'm learning is when the British government lost control of an Iranian oil pipeline, they went to America and said, oh, yo, the Iranian prime minister is secretly working with Russia and they're going to become a communist state. And that's why the U.S. came and overthrew the prime minister in the 1954. Fun, fun little fact. Anyways, I digress. You do not have a kind word to say about capitalism. And I think it. there's a degree of which I, I enjoy. I, however, there's a conflicting thought that I'm always stuck with. And it's this idea that capitalism at its core breeds market competition. And competition, I believe, is very good and healthy as a whole for society. How do you see competition being recreated in a libertarian socialist economy? So because I'm a free market anarchist, yeah, I agree. Free markets are the best way to breed competition and competition is a good thing. So yeah, I, I just don't think you need capitalism in order to have free markets. So that's kind of where the difference comes in. I don't think it's capitalism that breeds competition. I think it's free markets that breeds competition. Okay, point Ben. I did not get the point on that turn. But okay, then let's unpack your definition of capitalism, where it is essentially who holds the most capital, i.e. proof of stake. So yeah. if capitalism is proof of stake, what is what political system or systems would proof of work be similar to or analogous to? So I actually, I tweeted it quite a couple of, a couple of years back. I actually tweeted, Bitcoin is the perfect example of libertarian socialism. Proof of work is a libertarian socialist behavior because uh, you have the people as a whole. Anyone can join, anyone can try to mine blocks, anyone can contribute hash rate. There is no barriers to entry, no government saying you can or can't. It's completely free and open. And it's controlled by the people. So everyone who runs a node decides what their rules are. Essentially, it's, yeah, coin with proof of work is libertarian socialist from my perspective. So I want to, I want to understand a bit more about how you feel anarchy fits into this equation because whenever i think about anarchy i truly just my mind goes to the third christopher nolan batman movie where the scarecrow is holding court and just sending whoever he wants out into the middle of the ice like that to me is what anarchy looks and feels like so i guess the so do you support scarecrow is what q's asking <laughs> no are you no, scarecrow or joker um, guy maybe slightly more joker but nah, neither of them so Anarchy is rules without rulers, and the first part of that is still very important. There are rules in an anarchy. You just don't have rulers to set those rules. It's people coming together and deciding together what the rules should be. So in a lot of ways, you can say a Bitcoin consensus algorithm is a good example of anarchy. You know, there is nobody saying these are the rules. There are no rulers coming down and setting them. We decide them by consensus. Whether a pure anarchy can work in the real world or not, I think is still yet to be shown. It's been attempted a couple of times. Spain in the early 1900s had a period of anarchy, especially in Catalonia. Then you know, we've got a couple of smaller examples around the world in you know, small autonomous regions. And uh, yeah, there's always been attempts at anarchy. I don't know whether a pure anarchy can survive the long term, but I'm hopeful it could. And I tend to consider anarchy more of a goal than, or more of a goal to work, work, work towards rather than being something to be implemented out of whole cloth. So essentially every time you remove unnecessary rulers from a system, you have made it more anarchic and that's a good thing. So I want to build anarchic systems inside the current systems and basically make the current systems obsolete. So there's actually a nice term from socialism about that called the withering of the state. So essentially the state itself should just wither away as it becomes useless. Coin is a great great example of that. As Bitcoin grows and becomes stronger, central banks wither away. They become you know, unimportant, pointless, useless. Whether they exist or not, nobody cares. And eventually they just disappear on their own. Other anarchic systems potentially supported by the economic system of Bitcoin can be used to then wither away other aspects of the state. And you know, I'd like to see how far we can take that. 
Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-work shop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. So if I'm, if I'm following along correctly, it's not necessarily that you want total anarchy forever. It's rather you want the actions of an anarchy uprising in a moment for a blip almost to then afford and give a runway to recreate and fix whatever was broken by the leader or the whoever held the power previously. Yeah, but potentially with a removal of that power entirely, it just depends on what actually ends up happening. I mean, I I think I said this on the other podcast on as, I was on as well, on what Bitcoin did. You know, I will not say what the future has to look like, because if I did, I would be dictating it, and I am not a dictator. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what the perfect future looks like. I know what's well, I know what I perceive as wrong with today's society, and that is too much hierarchical control too many authoritarians saying this is how it has to be so get rid of the authoritarian saying this is how it has to be in every aspect of society that's not just governments that's states that's organizations that's companies get rid of the authoritarians and see how far we can take that i think like i greatly agree with that sentiment and if People just heard that sound bite. I don't think there would be very many Bitcoiners, P, correct me if I'm wrong, that would disagree with sort of that sentiment that there's just too much power concentrated by people who want to dictate and tell everyone else what is right or wrong because somewhere along the way they they were told they were given the right to believe that what they think is the highest level of right and wrong. P is thinking so hard because he is that level of person. I think you're correct, Q. I don't think many people would disagree with that. So let's let's talk about the world because as as we wrapped up using notes, we're talking about Italy going through sort of its political oh, shit. Man. We're talking about Iran going through its own political revolution right now in real time. We've we've seen it in this country pretty much on an annual basis since 2016, something or another happens in the political space that either the left or right uses as a, as a rallying cry almost to get their base excited and to push forward some sort of a conversation. You have all over Europe protests going on about the rising cost of oil and gas and the impending uh, crisis over in Ukraine and Russia. These are normal times, right? Like this is this is on par for what human history has said, or at least human history has said that we deal with on a regular basis. I, I think yes, but it's it's interesting because we went through kind of a period of relative peace and calm for quite a few years. I'd say the first you know twenty to twenty five years of my life, the the world was very peaceful and calm these last 15 years or 18 years have been a lot more chaotic violent you know uprisings happening all over the place economic crises but i 
I really think, yeah, it does come in cycles. The world has always been a relatively chaotic place, but the chaos is perhaps more heightened this time, perhaps more brutal, because we now live in an interconnected world. You know, in the last huge crises that happened in the world, we didn't have the internet like it is today. We didn't have a global economy like it is today. You know, one country could go through severe economic hardships without affecting other, other countries. That's not the world we live in now. The world we live in now, essentially things spread out all over the place. And that's actually where I see things like Bitcoin playing a really big role in helping, because if you're going to have, if you if we have one world economy, which realistically we do, we need to have one world economic system and it better not be a centrally controlled one. So you know, that's where Bitcoin comes in. But yeah, I think you know, there will be more turmoil. There will be more radicalization in both directions. There will be you know, extreme fascism happening in some parts of the world where people are people get more and more controlled by dictators. There will be places where a lot more freedom opens up and it may even be a bit chaotic for a while. You know, that classical view of anarchy, which is kind of wrong, of you know, people running out in the streets throwing Molotov cocktails and just, you know, being brutal and violent towards each other. You know, we may see more of that kind of civil unrest. But yeah, I think that's all growing pains towards what is hopefully a better future. Is there any particular, and like I didn't even mention Sri Lanka, and I'm sure I'm forgetting or missing countless other countries that are de dealing with ongoing revolutions, uprisings. But I'm curious if there's one in particular that you're paying attention to as like this could be something much larger or have a greater impact on the world than we maybe are prepared to admit at this moment in time. So honestly, not not as such. I mean, there are I do occasionally have concerns that the whole Russia versus the West thing could escalate by just a couple of bad decisions by people in high places. You know, if Putin decided to fire off nukes, all of a sudden the entire world is a very, very different place. You know, it's, that just changes everything immediately. I don't think that's going to happen, but of course, you know, that possibility does exist. Other things on a much smaller scale, which actually really interest me, are things like what's going on in northeastern Syria in Rojava. So that's a, an auto one of these autonomous zones, which is trying a libertarian socialist society. And I think, you know, if they succeed and become, you know, very self-independent, very capable of showing they can, you know, um, hold their own and be a peaceful internal society because you know right now it's syria they're surrounded by war and violence and all that sort of thing so it's hard for them to do anything but if they succeed in that i really do think other places in the world will look to them and say hold on that's something we could try too you know we can try not having giant centralized government we can try having you know smaller independent groups of people who come together and you know, agree on things rather than you know massive institutions which you then have some vague version of democracy happening so yeah i think that's something to look for but you know whether or not it'll happen really depends on what goes on in the rest of the world you know, again like i said you know, if putin fires nukes the whole world is different 30 seconds later i still haven't set the odds on that i know as the resident bitcoin magazine bookie someone asked me to put a bet down for the potential of nukes coming out of russia but remains to be seen eric I'll, I'll take care of that bet someday i want to i want to spend some time though talking just about the the crisis going on in europe you mentioned russia and any decision putin possibly making it is it is winter time for all intents and purposes i'm seeing mountains covered in snow so therefore summer's over it's now winter no such thing as fall at least not in la and the crisis is drawing concern from people and citizens calling upon their governments to actually give the citizens what they want. You bring up poor decision-making by potential leaders. There have been reports coming out of Europe now that back as early as January or even the end of 2021, there were deals on the table for a, a full peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine, and none of the Western leadership actually wanted to take it. Fast forward then to March and April, and there was another deal in place. And yet again, the leaders of the West opted not to take it and instead chose to continue to fund Ukraine. I want to get a sense of where do proxy wars fit into the spectrum of just like this political spectrum that we've 
spent some time defining at the beginning of this interview because this unfortunately is not the first proxy war we've seen even this century even this millennia like we see it so often that it's it's become very commonplace i want to get a sense of where this fits and how do we break that mold yeah so proxy wars are authoritarian in nature because obviously the people aren't the ones calling for it so you know it is done by the government so it's an authoritarian action either the authoritarian left or the authoritarian right could do proxy war so i don't think it's a matter of the left right part of the spectrum i don't think it's necessarily socialist or capitalist it can be done under either but it requires this state this authoritarian control so you know moving towards the libertarian end of the scale again whether left or right you know you're going to have less of that kind of thing happening because you know it's not something the people are going to come together and agree to do so you know i think yeah, it, it really has to do more with the authoritarian, libertarian scale on the axis rather than the left-right scale. And as a, a quick refresher, the authoritarian part of the scale includes both your Nancy Pelosi's and your Mitch McConnell's. They are one and the same. Surprise, surprise. Almost as if we've been telling you this for years on end now. Both of those I would call on the right, to be honest, though. But you know, there are authoritarians on the left as well. So... You know, yeah, Stalin, Chairman Mao, you know, those are authoritarians on the left. Ooh, I got one for Gavin you. Newsom. <laughs> no, Gavin Newsom is literally just like at the bottom, not left or right, just the bottom. Ben, where does someone like, let me, let me actually start with this one. The former prime minister of Singapore was thought by many in the West to be like this dictator, just put forward his own beliefs and values into this country and this city-state that went from being just on no one's radar to now sort of the bridge between the West and the East. But those decisions were looked at very critically. He took a very, very hard stance against drugs, even killing many drug dealers in the, in the city-state. Where does he fit on the spectrum? So I don't know his politics that well, so honestly, I couldn't say. Definitely authoritarian, you know, how far left or how far right, I honestly don't know. But it's actually worth pointing out that authoritarianism can get stuffed up. You, know, you can be very successful with authoritarianism. An example I occasionally bring up, and you know, people always slam me for it, is slavery. Slavery is this authoritarian thing which gets stuff done. You know, economically, you know, it's really good value for money to you know beat some slaves and get them to do your work for you. It's you know uh, the cost of upkeep of slaves is far less than the cost of upkeep of employees. So you know authoritarianism works. But that doesn't mean it's worth it. You know, we have to balance. The very first thing I described myself as today was a humanist. You know, I care about human well-being. So, do I want to have significant progress through, you know, a huge amount of the population being oppressed and so on? No, I would rather have less progress for more human freedom and flourishing. I think we just need to really hammer home the fact that. You were not condoning slavery as a humanist. Oh, you were very much alluding to the fact that slavery is bad. We do not condone slavery. Just, exactly. I need to hammer Unless that it builds off. the pyramids, in which case all bets are off. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, obviously, built the pyramids. Yeah, even then, you know, the pyramids are awesome, but you know, actually, there's potentially they weren't built with slave labor, which is cool. If they weren't built with slave labor, awesome, great. I'm really happy that the pyramids exist. If they were built with slave labor, am I allowed to swear on this show? Absolutely. Fuck yes. Yeah, right. So if they were built with slave labor, fuck those guys. The pyramids should not have been built. <laughs> yeah. Also, Absolutely. definitely built by aliens. So like, moot point here. <laughs> now here's a question for you. You said that you were a humanist. Yeah. What if the pyramids were built with alien slave labor? Not human. <laughs> not human. So actually, yeah, I, I use the term humanist, but honestly, there's a few humanists or a few former humanists who are pushing back against the word humanist because it's actually, it's a speciesist term. Yeah, you know, I and I would actually be, yeah, uh, I'm just using the term lazily. You know, I would say anything which has a certain level of consciousness and is capable of rational discourse and so on should be granted the same rights as a human and considered equally in that. Okay, then I got to ask this question, Ben, but do you eat pork? I do. I don't. And I would say, so I, I often actually get this question as a humanist, and, you know, I would say veganism is a moral virtue, but not a moral necessity. So if somebody says, hey, I'm a vegan for out of ethical grounds, I'll say, hey, good for you. You're probably doing a good thing, but 
I'm not that excited to do that myself. I don't see that I have to do it. I'm not required to do it ethically. Yeah. But if somebody else wants to go for it. <laughs> Can I? Oh, go ahead, B. I was going to take us in a slightly different direction. So you first, Kim. No, no, okay. I'm good. So we haven't, we've spent a lot of time talking about sort of your political views, political ideologies, the, the different definitions of some of these terms. I'm really curious, you know, you, you are the VP of engineering at Swan and, and I'm so curious yeah. how your political beliefs and your views and the, the understandings that you carry throughout your life around Bitcoin affect the, if at all, the specific technological beliefs you have around Bitcoin and the stuff you're doing at Swan. So put it, put it, put simply, what are some of the technical areas of Bitcoin that you feel are particularly important or particularly exciting to you right now? And how do your political beliefs affect those views, if at all? So with regards to Bitcoin specifically, and not necessarily my work at Swan, you know, obviously the two do intersect a lot, but with regards to Bitcoin specifically, privacy tech is kind of one of the big things for me. You know, I want to see Bitcoin become much more private, much more usable without being traced and so on. I, th I think that's somewhat of a necessity for a good functional decentralized money like Bitcoin is. So yeah, privacy is kind of my number one thing. That said, I would not accept privacy improvements, which remove some of the fundamental aspects of Bitcoin. So, you know, I'm not one of these people who's going to say, you know, hey, let's implement, you know, let's implement something where we can no longer accurately measure the supply of Bitcoin because we made it so private. You know, I, I would be against that quite simply because I think, you know, um, the fixed supply is such an important part of Bitcoin. It's a fundamental aspect of Bitcoin. So privacy, yes, but not in a way that's going to destroy what Bitcoin is. So that's, to me, one of the major things that I think my political beliefs kind of lean towards because you can't have a libertarian socialist society without you know a proper free form of money and the more you can trace and track and control the money the less free it is so yeah there's that and with regards to my work at swan you know i take very much a servant leadership approach as vp of engineering and that's largely based around my political views as i'm not an authoritarian i'm not going to be standing there saying hey you know you're writing this bit of code, you're writing that bit of code, you're writing that bit of code. I'm going to say, this is the goal that we have to do collectively. Hey guys, let's figure out you know, who's going to work on which bit, which bit, who's got the skills, how do we check each other's code, how do we make sure that you know, what we're doing is the right thing. And then you know, any problems come to me and I'll sort it out. You know, that's my job is to get you know, problems out of everyone's way in order to get the job done. So yeah, that's how my political views influence my work. I wonder if there's a degree of like, is there in just for yourself, not on behalf of any business or work that you do, the regulatory effort efforts taken against Bitcoin, whether they actually follow through with some of them or not, do you even care given the fact that like, there's just the potential for if there is a policy decision that is made that you don't like, this can fall under the, the guise of hey, when we have our anarchy uprising, like this this is one of the rules we're just getting rid of. I, I do care into long-term, long-term, but you know, as long as it's still negatively affecting people in the short-term, that is something I care about. So, you know, if, if there's a policy from a government to do something that I'm against, you know, to do something bad, then, yeah, I'm going to say that's a bad policy. If there's, if, and again, you know, even though I'm against authoritarians, I'm against the state, if the state does something I think is good, then I'll say, hey, that's a good thing. For once, the state actually did something good. Hooray, awesome. You know, it doesn't happen often or not nearly enough. So, you know, I do take that pragmatic view. I care first and foremost about, you know, how can we get the most uh, you know, the most benefit, the most well-being for people. It's a, so it's more about not having this friction, not making it difficult to onboard more people. What are... Like, what are the ways that you like to help either Orange Pill or onboard new users to the Bitcoin network? 
So yeah, I, I actually have a lot of experience orange pilling people because I live on Bitcoin. You know, I haven't had any fiat balance since 2017. I still occasionally use fiat as a medium of exchange when absolutely necessary, but I prefer to use Bitcoin directly and I do quite a lot. So yeah, I've got quite a bit of experience orange pilling people. Just recently I went to Riga for Baltic Honey Badger and I orange pilled the taxi driver on the way from the airport to the hotel. By the time I got to the hotel, he accepted Bitcoin from me and put a sticker in his car. So he accepts Bitcoin now. So that was fun. Yeah, I do that sort of thing around me a lot. And my usual method of orange pilling is to find out what people's problem is with, and then to, you know show them how Bitcoin can fix that. So you know, everyone has different problems. So for some people, it's going to be things like privacy. For other people, it's going to be things like inflation. Yeah, that's especially a big one at the moment because everyone's suffering more from it now than they have in the past. So different people have different concerns about money and talk to them about the right kind of thing. And that's how you orange build them. Okay. So let's say I'm a mid to late 20s, very handsome man with luscious hair who lives in his parents' basement has been having a hard time saving money. How would, what, what route would you take to orange pill this made up person? <laughs> so having trouble saving money would be kind of the point that I'd latch onto there. And essentially I just probably start talking about you know, time preference. It's easier to save you know, little bits of money you know, if you just you know, cut back on a few things kind of thing. But then you have to think, what's the value of the money I'm saving? And of course, Bitcoin is in the long term going to maintain or increase its value, purchasing power, while things like the dollar is not. So you know, that would be my, my route. But it, it's always a discussion. It's not just that I can say a few magic words and all of a sudden somebody's like, oh yeah, I'm orange built now. You know, it, it has to be a discussion with the person to figure out you know, what they need, what they're interested in, how they understand the world as it is, how, much, how they understand money as it is. I can appreciate that. Go ahead. Again, shifting topics, can we jump back to sort of how you view a potential transition between the world we live in now and a, a Bitcoin standard that, you know, would fall under sort of like your, your ideal sort of like political framework. So I think if you could start by once again, like defining like the, the political framework that we've been talking about and sort of like why it's important to you and then how we might shift to that and whether that can be done peacefully, aggressively, yeah. that whole process. So that's one of those things I have to say, I don't know exactly, you know, I, I have a few sort of vague ideas, but it's something which would have to happen relatively organically. I would hope it would be largely nonviolent. Creating new systems that are better than the existing centralized systems in a decentralized manner. So for example, it was one of those big ones right now, people either talk about you send your kids to a public school, you send them to a private school or you homeschool them. Um, all three of those have significant problems associated with them. You know, people like to talk about homeschooling as this wonderful panacea, but honestly, most parents suck at being teachers. So, you know, or they're going to, a lot of them might, uh, you know, do it out of ideological grounds. And that's also a problem for the rest of society. So, you know, you've got a wide range of ways to do this, but none of those have you know, a good solution. Maybe, and I'm not saying there is, but maybe there would be a way that we could have some kind of decentralized education system whereby we can educate people using the collective knowledge of everyone in some kind of way of you know, getting that information into the kids' heads and you know, helping them. And I really think you know, the internet plays a huge part in that, of course. You know, we couldn't do anything like that without the internet. But you know, that's, that's the kind of thing. And if we do that well enough, then all of a sudden, there is no need for people to pay for private schools. The public school attendance will go down and down and down and down until basically nobody's going there. We just got rid of centralized schools by doing a decentralized educational system. That's the kind of thing I mean, basically. Create new, better ways of doing things that don't have all of these centralized systems around them. And the other stuff that already exists will just kind of wither away on its own. Can we, we've tried before, and again, I need to reiterate that none of us here are experts in the medical field whatsoever, but where I really struggle sometimes is like, how do we, like the healthcare system in this country, in America, has its flaws. It, it absolutely does. 
but there are also flaws in other healthcare systems across the world. Where or how do we balance these things? And I want to go back to the competition that capitalism has created has created a lot of breakthroughs in modern medicine and modern Western medicine that previously were thought to be unimaginable. There's also, however, that incentive structure baked in where it's a lot more money involved in treating rather than curing diseases. And we have that conversation happen a lot and I will pound that drum until my last breath, which will inevitably be taken from me because of a disease that could have just been cured instead I was treated for. How do we really solve the global healthcare crisis? And like, I don't care about labeling the political system or this, it, there's shades of, no, fuck all of that. Like genuinely, what does a healthcare system that is actually meant to help people look like? In your opinion, yeah, I wish as I not knew. a medical expert. I, I, I wish I knew, you know, I'm also not a medical expert. I mean, I, I do actually have some pharmacological training, but yeah, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a med expert. I've never worked in that field. Again, yeah, I, I really don't know. I can say, you know, I'm incredibly thankful for the modern medical advances we have. It was actually about one year ago today, maybe actually yeah, about 11 months ago today, close enough to a year ago today. I was lying on an operating table with a robot operating on me, cutting out part of my kidney which had cancer on it. I'm completely cancer-free now because that robot did an incredibly good job slicing out part of my kidney. But you know that is amazing technology. I'm alive today. But, you know, I'd probably still be alive, but I'd be dying of cancer now had that had that not happened. You know, so I'm incredibly thankful all that exists, and you know I think competition is a great way that that happened you know so again that's one of the reasons i'm really a huge advocate of free markets because i think without the competition that comes from free markets we wouldn't have that kind of technology but then you get things like under the you know us medical system that would have cost me my life savings and more that would have been you know all of my money gone i miss hopefully i would have had some kind of decent healthcare system healthcare plan but you know even then you know, you pay some, you know, extra amount on top or, you know, a certain percentage of it or whatever the, you know, system there is. Here in Germany, where I live, I paid, you know, I think it was five euro per night for my hospital stay. And that was literally my entire costs and parking. So, yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, I do pay into the healthcare system. So, you know, that wasn't, you know, if you actually think about it, you know, I have been paying for it and everyone else is also paying for it. What is the best system? I don't know. To me, at the moment, it looks like socialized systems tend to work better than fully privatized systems. Partially privatized systems tend to be the absolute worst, where you've got you know, all of the inefficiencies of private systems, but none of the incentives of private systems. Those are absolutely terrible. I think France has something like that. Don't, don't quote me on that, though. There are any French people out there, I might be wrong. So, you know, I don't know what the best system is, especially because the socialized systems that seem to work really well right now are mostly government controlled. And I think that is very problematic. That leads to a lot of inefficiencies and waste and additional costs that don't need to be there. So yeah, that's a long way of saying, I really don't know the answer to that, but I would love for some very clever pe people to come together and discuss it and you know, figure see if we can figure out a, out a solution because you know, I'm not that expert to talk about that. Yeah, honestly, if you're listening to this conversation and you're laughing that I've tried to have this conversation out with multiple guests and you're like, I have the answer, like, please DM me, like, you will come on this show, we will talk about it because the world needs these answers. And I do want to very quickly before PS is way more on topic and on point question to remind everyone, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe down below on Rumble, it's right up there. Just feel free to subscribe, like, and if you're listening on any podcast, feel free to Leave us a review because that really helps us get discovered more. So, P, back to you. Ben, do you play any instruments? I don't. I actually, I started learning piano when I was uh, quite young. And then my music teacher at school told me that I'm technically very proficient and have no soul for music. So, Ooh. and that was the worst teacher ever. You know, a teacher telling a kid that is just, yeah, okay. <laughs> that that's terrible. But that's, that is yeah, rough. I, I gave up playing because of that. Ah, no. Yeah, we're going to go fight this teacher. So I, I ask because 
Yellow has been referring to as Gandalf the Black throughout this episode, which I find hilarious and dead accurate. And so I finally just, you know, was like, all right, I just need to make this image. So I just want to ask, like, how perfect of you as a younger man is this image? That's not bad. Actually, my beard was never that long. I actually kept it relatively short through most of my life because I wanted to look professional. And it's only really the last year, 15 years or so, I've said, fuck looking professional. So yeah, letting the beard grow now, but uh, yeah. All right, I'll appreciate it. I'll get back to it and, and send you the next draft. <laughs> I did. A, I had a similar thought, Ben, when I, I entered the unemployed workforces, and I said, "I get. A, I'll get a haircut before I start work." Little did I know that my job never required a haircut again. Yeah, that's a good. Great. So, so I want to shift us back to some of the more technical aspects around Bitcoin because you, you do have this incredible wealth of knowledge. What are some of the technologies that you have been that you, that are exciting you recently? For me, you know, federated Chamian mints are super interesting. I really like the stuff that's being done on you know Core Lightning with plugin architecture and sort of the liquidity ads and, and, and splicing. I'm curious, like what what technical aspects of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network have got you sort of you know your your brain on fire? So yeah, definitely you know, see Lightning's plugin architecture is awesome. I actually only recently reinstalled C-Lightning or CLN on my node because I used to work for Lightning Labs. So I was running LND for a long time, but I figured, okay, I'm not working with them anymore. I don't have to keep running LND. So I've switched over to C-Lightning and yeah, you know, that's, it's, it's interesting. Definitely. I really like some of the potential there. I actually think some of the really interesting stuff happening is some of the less visible stuff, some of the, you know, not so deep things. So, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, I think there's some awesome, amazing things that haven't even been thought of yet that you could do with Taproot. Having really complex branches for different options for spending, I think you actually could do some really, really cool things with um, Taproot, TatScript, and you know, just building complex trees. Mm. But to me, where some of the really interesting stuff, like I said, is happening, is at kind of the higher level. So, you know, BTC PayServer, I think, is an incredible product. They do some amazing stuff and some of their recent things that they've announced around their you know their plugin architecture their new I forgot what they call it their new api which is basically a lot more open and free compared to their old one which tried to emulate bitpay or whatever it was yeah yeah i think the stuff happening on btc pay server is really going to help merchants a lot self-sovereign merchants to do more than they could before so i think that's really where i see a lot of the cool things happening because that's where we're going to get adoption from. That's where we're actually going to get people using Bitcoin, wanting to hold Bitcoin, wanting to interact with Bitcoin, rather than some of these cool lower, lower layer technologies. You know, don't, and again, don't get me wrong, I think those are awesome too. But yeah, you know, the higher level stuff, I think, is where we can get the adoption happening. No, that's a great point. I mean, I think we were talking about this just before you came on, but you know, solving these like real world problems for businesses and entities for a long time, one of the largest challenges in Bitcoin in adoption, as you said, is like sort of Bitcoin having this UX problem. And there's some really, you know, like BTC pay server, which for the audience, if you don't know, you know, Bitcoin core is the, 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 the software that you run on a Bitcoin node, which then, you know, validates blocks and allows you to participate in the network and sort of be your own bank. But then there are these sort of, um, these, you know, sets of software that can, that run Bitcoin Core or communicate with Bitcoin Core via you know, RPC protocols and things like that and allow you to do additional stuff. They sort of package it up in this really nice way that, that enables a lot more functionality and makes it easier for people to use. So, you know, you hear us talk about Umbral a lot. You know, there's Raspi Blitz. There's all these different sort of aggregations of components. A lot of them have like a really nice, you know, user interface so you can go through and you don't have to only know how to use a command line. You can just go through and sort of click buttons and get all this functionality added in a really secure or varying degrees I should say, of, of security. They all make different trade-offs. But BTC Pay Server is a really, really robust implementation that allows you to access, you know, Lightning and all these different applications, many of which are built by, you know, some of the big organizations in the space in order to really easily sort of get off the ground and just be accepting Bitcoin payments and interacting with Bitcoin and Lightning and, and everything related to it. So yeah, BTC Pay Server is, is, is amazing. That's a great point. I uh, wh What are your thoughts on some of the newer kind of directions that hardware wallets are going with, with an aim towards adoption, you know, in terms of, this is a very broad question, I suppose, but how do we create systems that allow people who are not, you know, super hardcore Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoiners to safely and easily interact with 
Bitcoin and and hold their own keys and things like that. You know, obviously we have cold card, we have the work that, you know, that they're doing over at, at Spiral around this. I'm curious if you have any thoughts there. This is very vague, so please feel free to be like, eh, reframe the question. No, it, it is vague, but I can give a couple of thoughts. So, you know, personally, I love my cold card. I think it's, you know, the coolest hardware wallet by far. You know, I just love how how functional it is, how clever it is. Some of the nice little things like, you know, being able to do partially signed Bitcoin transactions on SD card very trivially, trivially. So, you know, it's great. But, you know, it's not that easy to explain to a complete noob how to use it. Um, Absolutely. You know, so then, yeah, then there are other hardware wallets which are much easier to explain and still are pretty good. The uh, Bitbox O2 from Shift, you know, that's, that's a nice little bit of hardware. It's much easier to use, but it, is missing a few of the features, which I would personally want in the cold card, for example. So, you know, there's always these trade-offs there. And then you've got things like, you know, some of these newer attempts with things like the tap signer. So essentially, you know, having your key on NFC and being able to just, you know, tap to, you know, put one of your signatures on. I think that's, you know, a very interesting idea. But again, there could be some trade-offs, there could be some concerns there, and you need to really think about the different security models. I don't think there is any perfect security model without education. So no matter what we do, we need to be able to educate people on what they are using. And I think a lot of that needs to start quite young. So, you know, I have two kids of my own and, you know, absolutely when it comes to things like, you know, what is a seed phrase? You know, how do I back it up? What happens if somebody else gets access to my seed phrase? What is multi-sec? Oh, look, multiple seed phrases. You know, those sort of things, those are the things I'm teaching my kids early absolutely because if that is natural to them if that's obvious to them it doesn't have to be that complex it's something people can intuitively understand if they've learned it in an intuitive kind of way rather than it being this strange arcane complex system you know i'm hoping my kids never need to open a bank account i'd love for the world to be at the point where they don't need to do that but if they ever do they're probably going to find it disgustingly complex and weird and not make sense because that's not the world that they've grown up with. Yeah. Hmm. A little bit off topic. I have one more question, Pia, and then I promise I'll shut up and let you have all, no, no, the, all the technical conversations you want to have. So Ben, last week I, I made a sweeping declaration on this show. I feel like for some time in the Bitcoin community, we've, almost overly romanticize the idea of the next billionaire or the next mega cap company essentially adopting Bitcoin in some way, shape, or form, whether it's they hold it on their balance sheet or they are now accepting it as a form of payment, whatever it may be, we continue to be like, oh, yes, Elon Musk now holds even more Bitcoin or Michael Saylor now has almost one one millionth. Like, my question is, is there a point where we probably should not have so much Bitcoin concentrated in the hands of like a few high net worth individuals? Or did I just put a hit out on myself by repeating this so many times on, on the public? Just know if I get killed, it was them that did it. I actually think it needs to be both because it does tend to be, it does tend to be things like, you know, let's say McDonald's all of a sudden worldwide start accepting bitcoin at those payment terminals that they have you know you go in you order that stupid touchscreen thing and then you pay if they started accepting bitcoin at those worldwide yeah that would be one company doing it but what would that actually encourage that would encourage broad adoption that would encourage a whole lot of people who go to mcdonald's go oh look yeah what is this bitcoin thing i've heard a lot about this but i've never really looked into it before i can use it at mcdonald's interesting and you know people would start getting a small amount of Bitcoin. And I think that's what's really important is the broad adoption of Bitcoin. So it shouldn't just be in the hands of these centralized entities, the um, you know, big central entities like Michael Saylor, McDonald's, whatever. But you know, if McDonald's did that, that would encourage the broad adoption. So I actually kind of think of it as almost in some ways a necessary evil for that sort of thing to happen. Yeah, but broad adoption is the goal. I just don't think it's going to happen without probably some uh, some of the larger entities deciding to accept it. Well said. Ben, I want to give you the opportunity to maybe touch on anything we haven't yet asked you about or any topics that you wanted to take this opportunity to highlight. The mic 
and floor is yours. No censorship whatsoever. All right. I hadn't actually thought of anything in particular. So yeah, no, I think it's actually been you know a really good conversation so far. And I actually, one of my, one of the reasons I agreed to do this interview was I know that there is still a huge pushback against the word socialism out there. So, you know, something I would actually like to kind of say to everyone, if you think that my position is not socialist, then feel free to call me whatever you want to call me. You know, I, labels are just labels who cares the reason i currently use those labels is because that's how political philosophers of the past have defined those terms you know like sure if on twitter if you say libertarian socialist you get 90 percent of the people saying that makes no sense that's an oxymoron that doesn't work you know if you say that to a political philosopher it makes sense if you pick up a book you know books on political philosophy you will find libertarian socialism described and it's the position that i hold so that's why i use that label but you know i'm not attached to labels i don't care that much about labels what i care about is people's beliefs and people's actions and how people you know behave in this world to make the world hopefully a better place rather than a worse one if i see people making the world a worse place i will actively work against them if i see people making the world a better place i will actively help them you know so Labels, yeah, labels, who cares? What I care about is positions. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I, I will say I've learned a lot in this conversation. And one thing that I want to ask is, are, do, can you recommend any resources that like visually, because I'm a, I'm a pretty visual person, like lay out sort of like the, the different aspects of this spectrum. I found a few as we're talking, but none of them really kind of like uh, 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 supply yeah. enough detail. Visually, not so much. When you say visually, the only thing I can really think of is this, this nice little test you can do online called the political compass. And you know, it gives you a position on a four-axis quadrant between author- so two scales, authoritarian to libertarian on vertical, and left to right, so you know, socialism to capitalism on the mm-hmm. left to right axis. And you, know, you can take this test, and it gives you a point somewhere to show you where you belong. And those questions can help highlight perhaps what some of the positions actually are. I actually find it interesting because a lot of people who say that they are libertarian right actually end up on the libertarian left where they take the test. They just didn't, you know, people who are free market anarchists, for example, are most certainly in the lower left quadrant, not the lower right. But, you know, if they call themselves an anarcho-capitalist, they might have thought of themselves in being the lower right. Interesting. Um, but, yeah, even though it's not it's official, so- there's a couple of books I'd really recommend. Yeah, so, yeah, please do. It's so funny you, you say that because I literally am looking at a four quadrant chart right now and it, it gets it backwards. It puts, it, okay. it literally just makes the mistake that you just said. Yeah. So Socialism by John Stuart Mill. Okay. That's essentially about libertarian socialism, despite the name not having it. And another book also by Mill is On Liberty. So okay. yeah, that's, yeah, obviously you take those two books together and yeah. And another kind of very short one, like this is tiny book, is The Soul of Man Under Socialism by Oscar Wilde. Oh, I, okay. I love it. Yeah. Oscar Wilde's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to try to read through these or at least one of them before we have our next conversation so I can hopefully give you some like real meaty questions the next time we talk. I appreciate yeah, it, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. Very welcome. It's been a real pleasure. Ben, where can our audience get triggered by following you most? So that would be Twitter. It's just my Ben underscore Deval. So first name, last name with an underscore in between. I want to really hammer home. If this conversation triggered you, made you uncomfortable or upset, probably worth taking the time to explore that. Probably worth taking the time to reading and listening to ideas and thoughts that you may not necessarily or naturally agree with which I hope was part of this conversation for you all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, let's call it a show. My friends, we will see you same time, same place tomorrow. Q, who do we have joining us tomorrow? Ooh, tomorrow we have Natalie Smolensky from the Bitcoin Policy Institute joining us as she has written a white paper on CBDCs that she will be presenting to Congress on Thursday. And we're going to break down and have a conversation with her about this white paper. And correct me if I'm wrong, the premise of the white paper is CBDCs bad. Yeah. <laughs> you hit the head on the nail CBDC right there, man. bullshit. Yeah. Cool, I mean, cool, cool. It's, 
I genuinely thought when it was sent to me, I was like, wait, is someone making a case for CBDCs? And am I about to have to spend the next like hour and a half reading this case? And very quickly I was like, oh no, this part. Okay, cool. Based. Got it. This is going to be fun. Very well written. I'm excited for this conversation. Awesome. Well, my friends, if you have not already, as always, Bitcoin Amsterdam is right around the corner. You can get your tickets today on the website using code BMLive to save 10%. Of course, as Q said earlier, we also have our incredible censorship-resistant issue, which is more and more pertinent in today's day and age. I don't know. We don't sell foam Bitcoin things in the store, so I don't know why Q's way up. There it is. There's the magazine. We'll see you tomorrow, my friends. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.